At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I am fantastical. It is Halloween on this day of recording. Very appropriate so for you to be you... fantastical on the day of Halloween. I'm not sure when you'll be listening to this, but it will be a very spooky and scary episode. No, it won't. No, it really won't. No. People all the time are asking for Halloween-appropriate games. Like, I don't really do gaming that way really <laughs> i really couldn't think of anything you could pick you know your your large swath of zombie type games yes or... my favorite roughly halloween appropriate game would probably be cthulhu death may die true but, but that's uh... i was thinking I, I can't understand why there is not an exact like an actual halloween game why is there not a game about kids trick-or-treating it is like a recipe fulfillment one where you have to get certain kind of candy you have to have trading though at the end oh there's trading yeah oh there's, good there's going to different houses and different areas and 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 you know that gamers would buy it leading up to halloween and there's a huge like time limit so there's like route planning because you got to be home by like eight o'clock oh my parents goodness. are gonna be mad right so that sounds why, like a great game I mean, this is this is this whole why this conversation started Mark. Wow. why isn't this game made wow all right so in case you haven't noticed, it is a board game podcast. We're going to talk about games. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. Then we're going to talk about our feature game of the week, which is Dead Reckoning. Mark, what did you play this week? I get to play a trio of animal-based dice games. Played another game of Spots. This is an upcoming game by CMYK that's going to be released in mid-November by Alex Haig, John Perry, and Justin Vickers, and that is an excellent, excellent pedigree. I'll probably have more to say about Spots as the fullness of time develops and closer to the game's release. Played some more games of Longshot the Dice Game, which is kind of sort of but not really a roll and write about horsies. Continue to enjoy it. I don't think I enjoy it as much as everyone else does. I mean, people have latched onto it very, very strongly locally, singing its praises effusively. And I enjoy Longshot the Dice Game. I like how there's elements of timing. I like how there's elements of pushing your luck. I like how there's elements of knowing when to sink the big investment. There's cash flow issues. 
but whatever the magic is that really grabs people, that really causes the excitement. And I feel this excitement in other horse racing games and other racing games like Winter Circle by Reiner Knizia. So I, I find it a fine diversion, and it's very, very quick, and it supports a large number of players. But as I say, I remain comparatively unmoved. What's the element of genius that you think is... Well, I was thinking there's no, no gameplay part of it, I think, that locks it in for me. It's just the fact that it does everything that you just said in a very short time period with any number of players that you want it to, with a very short teach and very interesting and easy to manipulate components. That's fair. And it has variety, too, because there's like three different decks that you can play. There's all sorts of sort of interaction you're going to get with the horses and the dice and all of that stuff. That is indeed fair. The final of the three dice-based animal games was Mountain Goats. This is by Stefan Risthaus at BoardGameTables.com. Stefan Risthaus is best known for his design work on Arkwright and Gentis, so not exactly your simple small box games. Mountain Goats I would describe as a riff on Can't Stop. For those of you that are familiar with the Sid Saxon Classic and Can't Stop, you roll four dice and you're obliged to combine them into two sets of two. So this this pitch of dice is going to turn into a six and an eight. This pitch of dice is going to turn into a ten and a five, etc., etc. Well, Mountain Goats, on the other hand, has only five to ten and you can combine the dice in any way you want. So if you roll three twos and a six, well, that could be two sixes if you want it to be. It could be, an, it, it can't be an eight and a four because it topped out at five. So it makes it easier to get to the higher numbers in a way. If you're very lucky and you roll very high numbers, you get four fives or two fives and two sixes as the case, depending. So that little bit made it feel simultaneously more open, but also a little bit swingier in terms of luck. And it's not exactly similar to can't stop in the rest of ways, although there is a push your luck element because as your mountain goat gets to the very top of the mountain and starts scoring, the next person to get to the apex of the mountain kicks your mountain goat off and send it tumbling down to the bottom. And so when you wish to ascend and start scoring is a matter of some choice. It was okay. It <laughs> Scores at the end of the game were approaching triple digits, but all within about 10 points of each other, which makes me a little bit dubious of games like that, especially where dice are a significant in influence in terms of how likely you are to score. So I was left with the nagging suspicion that my decisions really didn't matter a whole heck of a lot, which, you know, with quick dice games is not the end of the world. But when you compare it to spots, when you compare it to long shot the dice game, all three of which I should note I played in the same evening back to back to back, I was left with the feeling that Mountain Goats, although cute, didn't have the same kind of quality of decision making as the other two games. I like dice games when there's actual elements of mitigating risk, of making clever decisions about how to utilize resources available to you. Both spots and long shot have that in spades. Mountain Goats, I'm not too terribly sure. I'd play it again if it were put in front of my face. As I say, it was cute and it was relatively quick and inoffensive, but I don't think there was quite as much there. So that is Mountain Goats by Stefan Risthaus. Well, on the subject of long shot the dice game, if you want to see how it's played, you'll see, find it on our live tab because we just played it last Saturday. And in the feeling of Halloween, we also played Mysterium Park. And so you can see sort of like how the steps go. It goes Mysterium, Mysterium Park, and then the game we talked about the last couple of weeks, Oneronauts. Mysterium Park is sort of yet another boiled down version of Mysterium, so a little more simplified. And then Oneronauts takes out the sort of storyteller part altogether and it's completely cooperative so in mysterium park you just quickly go through the three stages of you know where the who 
committed the murder, where the murder was taking place, and then you make the final guess and, and link them all together. This is put out by the Bellad, and it's a great, great little sort of deduction game. So compared to Big Grown-Up Mysterium, how did you feel it shook out? Uh, it was a lot easier, it seemed, with the four of us. Maybe with player counts, it might vary on difficulty, but we got through it with half the turns we needed and then immediately mm. solved the end That does sound case. significantly Maybe easier. Maybe it's got very good cards. I don't know. But after playing those two, I, I'm I'm leery to go back to the length that is Mysterium when it, you know, I mean, it, it achieved, these two games achieve pretty well the same feel that mm. Mysterium has, and but Mysterium does it in such a much longer game. I'm not sure. I'd have to just, I'd have to play it one more time to see if there's mechanics in there that justify its length. It's strange. For me, it's not so much the mechanical elements of the full game of Mysterium. And keep in mind, we're talking primarily about uh, Tajemniče de Mostvo, the uh, Ukrainian slash Polish slash other Eastern European country public published versions of Mysterium, not the French slash American reprint, because we don't really like the voting. We don't like the extra stuff. It's, it's kind of uh, superfluous. But I'm actually keen to go back to full-fledged Mysterium precisely because what I appreciate about it is you're doing three different kinds of image association. You know, the art style on all the, the people's places and things are so radically different from each other that I really feel like I'm actually progressing through something. It feels like the game has an arc. And so I think the game merits its additional weight. And again, on the topic of games that might be appropriate for Halloween, Mysterium definitely qualifies, I think. You know, there's a ghost. Ghosts are spooky and something, something Halloween. And every game for me is basically like a Halloween game because I can't play games without copious amounts of chocolate in my face at all times, and I can't really function without it. Sorry, just a moment here. Anyway, I'm back. The O'Henry has been devoured. Yeah, so I'm keen to go back to, to full-fledged Mysterium after playing a couple of the lighter derivatives, although I have not tried Mysterium Park and am somewhat curious. But as we've said before, Alexander Nevsky can keep riffing on this idea for the rest of his career, and I, for one, will be happy to let him do it, both in tribute to the genius of the original Mysterium, and because even the derivatives, even though I might prefer original Mysterium in concept and in execution, are still at least mildly cute. All right, Mark, I think I'm ready to totally talk about Oathsworn now. You've had time to process? Processing has been done. I'm sure we're going to go back to it one or two times, but I don't know if we're going to do a full review, because I think in order to do a full review at this point, we'd have to play the entire campaign. I believe so, or at least a significant chunk of it, and we're not really in a position to burn through lots and lots of chapters day after day after day. So I, what I, I feel Oathsworn does much better than all of these other games that have come before it is because it has boiled down to exactly what I want, at least out of a campaign system like this. In other campaign systems, you're trudging through these, you know, endless caverns, beating down these, you know, the, just the, the little guys, right? By the time you get to the final boss, or maybe you're not even getting another to the, cave full of bandits, uh, another yeah, cave full least, of cultists. And maybe you're not even get to, getting to the big boss. You have to go through like the six stages of little guys, and it's like, okay, now we're going to, you know, get you the big. This is yeah, big boss right off the beginning. Your big attacks, you the big rewards all at once. None Hold of nothing back. Frivolous stuff that you know is in between setting up maps, all this other silly stuff, all in one, one big fight, and. Even though the story pretty well let us down, like the second part of the story. It did and it didn't. I'll, I'll elaborate on that later. It still was very interesting. Even the, the sort of disjointed stories that we did get uh, still were interesting. 
the monsters are very interesting. The mechanics of the second monster was over the top interesting. Yes. Um, I would suggest this to almost anyone. I, 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 I fall, not, I shouldn't say fall in love. I, I do now understand this card flowing system. It took you a while to warm up to it. You were strongly against it for a while, but you seem to have warmed yeah, up. To I it. seem to be fighting against it. Then I realized it's, it, it is, this is just part of the game. You, need mm-hmm. to, you can't just, you know, say, I need, want to do this attack and this attack. It's like, no, I need to, you know, have this flow going so I can be constantly doing these attacks as to just, you know, trying to do the most damage, trying to do the most damage throughout the whole fight. So Oathsworn Into the Deepwood is on Kickstarter again for the reprint, and a number of people have been asking us, you know, should I buy it, should I not? Well, it really depends. I think, I'll reiterate what I've said in weeks past, I think in terms of making the campaign experience as low a barrier to entry and as flexible as humanly possible, I think that Oathsworn is close to genius. In terms of people coming in, dropping out, you want to skip the scenario, you want to do just the story, you want to do just the combat, you want to swap characters, go ahead. Because as much as the flexibility of a lot of other campaign systems, and they usually have one or two of those elements of flexibility, rarely all of them together. Oathsworn has all of them. There's pr- there's a practically no paperwork, and on top of that, there's no meaningless combat encounters. I really like managing the card flow in a game of Gloomhaven, but it is hard to deny that killing another set of guards or bandits is not necessarily going to be everyone's favorite cup of tea. I like the fundamental card system enough that I'm willing to do it, but again, there's you pay costs for that. The costs being that you'll have a whole bunch of perhaps not terribly consequential combat encounters that are just there to attrit you, the cost of setup, a whole bunch of other things. And yes, I do keep comparing Oathsworn to Gloomhaven, but I'd like to point out two things just for context to make things perfectly clear. I sometimes compare Oathsworn favorably to Gloomhaven, and Gloomhaven is in my top 10 game of all, games of all time, and I think it deserves its spot on the Board Game Geek rankings. So to say that Oathsworn is sometimes better and sometimes worse than Gloomhaven is still very, very high praise, <laughs> just to keep things in context. And I agree with you, the second encounter overall, so every encounter in Oathsworn has the story phase and then the combat phase. And we've played it now four times, but the first three times were against... <laughs> Combat encounter number one, because we seem to be the only people in the world who found it hard, but we did. We found it real hard. (laughs) Anyway, we found the second combat encounter significantly easier. Maybe that's because we had leveled up. Maybe that's just because our characters had leveled up. Tough to tell. And mechanically, that boss fight was very interesting. Mechanically, also, the boss fight was relatively well situated because if you play your cards right, no pun intended, you get to know stuff about the boss before you build your hand of cards for the coming fight. And we were able, I was able anyway, to make what I think were intelligent decisions about how to use my cards based on what little we knew about the boss. That was super satisfying. The one area where Oathsworn let us down was, as you said, the story ended up being a little bit disjointed because it was trying to allow you to go down multiple paths paths, not at once, but you could pursue one of multiple paths, and the writing didn't quite manage to make that clear, and so there were a number of instances where I would read a paragraph, and the general feeling at the table was, wait, did we miss something? You know that something has gone off when a number of the players hear the paragraph, was there a paragraph you skipped, or we had the wrong paragraph, and you reconstruct it as laboriously as you can, and you're in the right place. It means that the paragraph-based storytelling script isn't sufficiently clear, not as sufficiently immersive, and it was trying to bite up more than it could chew. Despite that, I still found the quality of writing very, very consistently high. And so I very much appreciate it. We're now at the point now where I'm trying to gather information from the crew and say, look, if you want in, 
say you want in, but I want to go as fast as possible. Because not not because I feel any sort of rush, but this is absolutely something I wish to pursue. And this is not something parenthetically I've felt about any other big campaign system since Gloomhaven launched. So that's something, right? Like we've we've bounced off a whole bunch of these different games, either because they were obviously an interesting from the first, or in the case of Stars of Arcarios, we just got sick of how bad it was leaning into the unpleasant stuff, and it didn't develop in an interesting way. So I have to say that I think Oathsworn overall is a, is a serious, serious winner. And if you're wondering whether it's worth the expenditure of your money, I would have to say yes. It's an expensive proposition. I don't if, even if you don't go for the minis, the minis are nice. But just jettison the minis if you don't want them. If you're at all inclined towards this style of game, if you're interested in seeing how this style of game can be developed, I can solidly recommend Oathsworn. So, Oathsworn into the Deepwood was designed by Jamie Jolly of Shadowborn Games. This is a review copy we got from the publisher. Now, having gotten over the hump of that early first combat encounter, it's I think it's it's all upside from here on out, and I'm very, very much looking forward to future investigation into Oathsworn into the Deepwood. On the topic of campaign-style games, Weasel Tech. Weasel Tech is an independent miniatures game rule system designed by Ivan Sorsen of Nordic Weasel Games. Nordic Weasel Games is best known for its solo campaign system, Five Parsecs from Home, which was recently republished in a glorious hardback full-color edition by Modiphius Games. They've also spun off a number of versions of this in the X units of distance from Y, so adapting the five parsec system to a variety of other settings. Weasel Tech is not like five parsecs. Weasel Tech is inspired by Macross. I don't know if you've ever heard about this about me, Walker. This is a secret that I've never told another living soul. Oh, do tell. I am partial to Macross. Really? Yes. The key hook for me, and the reason why I went to WarGameVault.com and instantly purchased Weasel Tech five seconds after I heard about its existence, was because the, the premise is this is a mech miniatures game where the relationship between your pilots is as consequential as what happens on the battlefield. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely Yes. Now, solo miniatures gaming is sometimes a hard sell. You have to set up the table, you have to do all this paperwork, and make no mistake, Weasel Tech is very much a game about paperwork and about setting up terrain and managing a whole bunch of miniatures. I played Weasel Tech five times in the times that I purchased the walker. So suffice to say, I have been very much compelled. Now, this was enough to complete Operation Stalwart Cornbread. That is absolutely the name of the operation that was spat out by the, the, the operation name generator. Uh, the rest of the game doesn't have a comic tone, but they've just de- de- definitely decided to have a whimsical note for the operation name gen- generator. Everything is a baked good. It is like, you know, valiant or stalwart or indomitable muffin cornbread, you know, <laughs> anyway. And the key question here is, can I tell you stories about the people in this mech unit? So there's you start off with six pilots and a whole bunch of command staff, six of them to be, to be precise. And the issue is, can I tell you stories about who these people are, what they've done, their relation to other pilots? The answer is yes. If I started, I would not stop. And it would probably occupy the rest of this episode easy. So they've crawled up into my head, and I know who they are, and I know why they do what they do. And that alone will keep me going, no doubt. I have vague misgivings about what Operation 2 might look like, because if this is the way thing, I, I don't know how, how the difficulty scaling is going to go. I was, it was feeling pretty easy by about uh, uh, Mission 2 of the Operation, and I wasn't having any difficulty leveling up my pilots and just stomping everything that showed up on, on, the, on the board. So... I, I think I might need a little bit more challenge to keep going to, you know, Operation 345. 
just interest in what's going to happen to my pilots won't necessarily get me that far because, you know, they don't develop while fighting. Generally speaking, they mostly develop in between missions. I'm a huge fan of Weasel Tech, though. <laughs> I just hope that the difficulty increases in a way that I find satisfying. I don't have any villains yet. No recurring villains. Just a couple of elites. And the setup has been facilitated somewhat, this is sort of a capsule review, by my upzone wargaming terrain that finally fulfilled after standard Kickstarter delay shenanigans. These are a series of large boards that function as pop-up books, and so you can set up wargaming terrain just by folding out the board, and there you have this feature. This is a, it gives you a large section of board that has been very subtly done in one-inch grids, which helps with eyeballing measurements, and on top of that there's a ruined cathedral, or this is a stack of shipping containers, and so as a consequence to set up my game table, all that I've needed to do is unfold and fix the tabs of three different boards, and then a tiny little bit of scatter terrain because, this is another glorious thing about Weasel Tech, there are no use in having waist-high walls. Zero cover rules in Weasel Tech. The assumption is that your mech's shooting at other mechs. You're so big, there's not really cover. You either see them or you don't. I'm like, fine. Works for me. Keeps things appropriately simple. And there's a glorious differentiation in terms of weapons, and you can unlock new techs and unlock new mechs and all, all that kind of stuff. Of course, I will be visually representing all of my mechs exclusively with uh, my Macross miniatures, so a VF-1J, a VF-1S, and usually a Defender or a Tomahawk case, depending. Oy. Oh, I'm sorry. If I used their their uh, their battle tech names that they used without strict permission, I'm sure you'd be fine. So these are Phoenix Hawks, Walker. Two Phoenix Hawks and either a Warhammer or a Rifleman. Happy? Are you happy? I don't think you're happy. You don't look happy. Anyway, I could talk about Weasel Tech for a long time. If this is any, in any way something you're interested in giving a shot, I highly, highly recommend it. You can find it on WarGameVault.com. You know that this is a niche product because, number one, I had to be the one to submit it to BoardGameGeek. There had not been an entry there yet. And the information management is such that I, after the first play, I sat down and spent about an hour making my own play rights because that was my enthusiasm for it and the necessity of consolidating all the tables in one place. Weasel Tech by Ivan Sorensen at Nordic Weasel Games. So odd that someone that designs a game and their first process is not to go to Board Game Geek and, and make an entry for it. Miniatures gamers don't really care about Board Game Geek. Yeah, but this much. is so low. I, I, I would put that into a different genre, and especially when you don't have your own brand of miniatures. It's sort of like a... Anyway. Maybe. Well, I, 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 look, I've had to do the same thing with games of Roby Jenkins. I've had to do the same thing with a number of indie miniatures rule sets. Mark, I got a Kickstarter copy of Hand to Hand Wombat. This is designed by Matthew Inman, Ethan Lee, and Corey O'Brien. It's uh, fingers aggressively exploring the region of the box, locating <laughs> knobby rings and sliding them down to the base of the shaft. Oh my what goodness, a, Walker! What a very well, everyone's blindfolded. I know. Just just don't get us to the OnlyFans territory. Oh, we sorry. Need to, yeah, yeah. Is that not what happened? I'm sorry. <laughs> Our OnlyFans broadcast is for later, Walker. So yes. Where everyone at the table is blindfolded. You have these different square rings that you have to put down on these stands and they have to be built in a pyramid fashion. But one person at the table is the traitor wombat. They are secretly trying to mess with or impede, impede, sabotage the whole process. And what it is, and it, like, like someone said at the table, it is more fun than it has any right to be. So the first time I played it was somewhat undercut by the fact that the bad wombat was 
taking too much obvious delight in their shenanigans, and so is identified immediately. <laughs> That's fine. Without the traitor wombat, it becomes a relatively tedious exercise. Also, we played, the, uh, the first time I played was with four, so three people trying to build pyramids and one person trying to destroy them. We played this time with five, and that extra set of hands really increases the chaos. And I think that if you want to play hand-to-hand wombat, you really need that level of chaos. If for no other reason, then it... It just gives the bad wombat enough cover. It's one of those cases where, yes, they're outnumbered by more, but at least they have a little bit more cover to sow chaos. I was the bad wombat this time. I found the role very difficult. I found it very difficult to try to figure out how to make errors in a plausible way or introduce chaos when there were hands everywhere that could track what I was doing. I will note another difference in this playing of hand-to-hand wombat. Uh, This time I got to play with the Kickstarter components and the adorable blindfolds that literally show little wombat paws covering your eyes and the most absurd deluxe cards I've ever seen in my 25 plus years of hobby gaming. I can't see how, like, this this is Las Vegas down the main strip with lights on. Deluxified card. I, I don't understand how you could get any more deluxified in a card. It's got. Like, it defies imagination. Velvet backs. It's got this velvet furry back with, with, with like different levels of embossing. And then on the front, it's got those little holograms that, that animate as you tilt the card back and forth. It's just. So they're incredibly thick, impossible to shuffle because <laughs> yes. they stick together because they're coming up belt on the back, but undeniably adorable and certainly luxe. It's a good thing that Chip Theory Games never tried these cards before they decided on their manufacturing processes. Otherwise, they would have gotten obsessed with it, and then every game would have been like that. It's true, and electronic timer on top of everything else. Oh, I forgot the electronic timer. Oh, do you know why I forgot? Because you didn't hit it the first round. Yeah, well, true. There was that. Yeah, so... You should have been happy. You were the... No, because the more time there is, the the better off it is for the good wombats. extra time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, I think that you need the right crowd... It's hard to be the bad wombat, but you need a good bad... No, I'm not saying I was a good bad wombat, but if somebody, if, if you get identified as, as the bad wombat after round one, the game becomes trivial and uninteresting for everybody. And so I think the right player count is key, and the blinged out components certainly didn't hurt, although I don't think that they're a necessity. That is hand-to-hand wombat. We got to try Root the Marauder expansion. This is the later set of expansion that has introduced two new factions, namely the Warlord Mice and the Crusader-type Badgers. And I had had misgivings about the Marauder expansion for two reasons. Number one, I had a priori misgivings because this is the first time you have design credits for people at later games who are not Cole Worley. And as inconsistent as Cole Worley's output can be, I at least have more faith in him than the people at later games, who, broadly speaking, their other output I have not enjoyed at all. And on top of that, I had read some early reports from people that I trust, among them Chris Farrell, that the new factions, uh, specifically the Warlords, were somewhat overpowered. And so I was a little bit nervous. And on top of that, of course, I didn't have the custom bags from the board game store <gasps> for the new factions yet. And so I had to put them in transparent plastic bags like some sort of filthy peasant. Gross. <laughs> that is indeed the only word for it. Gross. I apologize for the experience, and I thank you for holding holding it in while we were playing and not just vomiting up all over the table. I did have a bucket, just to make sure. Absolutely. 
That having been said, we played with the new advanced setup rules, which are great. You draft factions. Now that there's a huge number of factions, I think that's a great way to simplify setup and to force a little bit of variety and prevent people from either taking the same factions over and over or from... Yeah, and sort of like a double draft, right? Because you'd only deal out a certain number of all of the available. Some, yes. So some you won't even be able to pick. Absolutely. And then you draft from those that you have picked. Yeah. Absolutely. It also helps mitigate for start player advantage because one of the little structural niggles of root is that the first player has a considerable advantage and here at least the first player has last pick of the available factions so there's there's something along those lines and we had a great time with both new factions as it happened just randomly both new factions came up both new factions were in play some of the timing considerations on the marauders i think held them back walker you played as the marauders and i think that there was a little bit of, of trickiness about when things were triggering which is very common with new factions and they're a very timing heavy heavy faction i think i was playing as the crusader badgers had a great time with them what was interesting about the crusader badgers is they want to maintain military presence they want to control various clearings but they need to be on the move, and so they need military infrastructure, but it's mobile. They kind of sweep across the map trying to hold different points at different times. And that I thought was really interesting, and it was exploring new elements of the design space. So suffice to say that my misgivings were completely won over by the charm of the new design and the interesting ideas that they introduced, and so I had a great time with the Marauder expansion, and I think it is a worthy entrant to a long list of very worthy elements of Root. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's amazing how much they can do with this system. And and it's not just like a more cards type thing. It's, exactly. It's a whole new faction that changes up entirely how all the other factions have to interact with, with not only the game, but with each other and the new factions. Every time I play Root and everyone else at the table says the same thing, why do you want this? is just a great game. Why is it not on the table more often? Yeah, we need to be playing more Root. There's also yet more stuff from the latest Kickstarter, specifically the Hirelings which have a whole bunch of adorable custom little animal meeples. And so I'm interested in giving that a try. I Again, I have misgivings once more because <laughs> I don't know how adding an extraneous element into a system that is already simultaneously chaotic and janky, but at the same time really tight and satisfying will work. But I'm open to the experience, especially after the positive experience we had with Root, the Marauder expansion. This is by Nick Brockman, Patrick Later, Cole Worley, and Joshua Yearsley of Later Games. Got to return to Capital Lux Two Generations, and it never fails to please. This is put out by Aporta Games, and I just love how the different special abilities completely change the gameplay. The scores were huge just because of the variety, the the types of of abilities we had. I just I don't know what else to say. <laughs> if you haven't a chance to try, find somebody that has a copy of this, give it a try. You will not be disappointed. This is designed by Elif Swenson. Christian Amundsen Usby. Capital Lux 2. Generations. Fully agree. Played a game of ISS Vanguard. Or maybe I did. I'm not sure if I did. You had the components out. There were pieces involved. There were cards. 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 There were dice. Uh, The game seemed to tell me that I had done something. Okay, here's the thing. I'm a little bit annoyed, to be frank, at ISS Vanguard. Here's why. It's the latest campaign-style thing from Awakened Realms, and it says, all right, there's only one way to do this, and that's to do the tutorial. You gotta do the tutorial. It's gonna be three to four hours, and we recommend you do it alone. I'm like, oh boy. Was it like the hand-to-hand wombat, which says, like, reading rules from a book is 
stupid for no. dumb people. No, it didn't do that. Watch it, this video instead. It, no, it did say that I had the option of watching video. That gotcha. part was fine. Okay. That part was definitely, you have two ways to go about doing this. You can either watch the video, and I'm, I'm kind of glad I didn't do the video for reasons I'll explain later, or you can go through the rule book, but you, you, we recommend you do it alone so that you can internalize the rules, and it's going to take you three to four hours. I'm like, ugh. Great. That was not the way to get me enthusiastic about a large box of stuff, especially since it took me about an hour to sort the thing after I first got it. But I did it. I did it. In part because patrons have expressed interest in hearing about ISS Vanguard. The first thing is, is the tutorial is simultaneously unnecessary and essential in all the wrong ways. It's essential in all the wrong ways because it's the beginning of the story. And so I, having gone through the tutorial, the first step of explaining the game to the to the rest of the group, whoever it is, doesn't matter whether it's someone in our core group or anybody else, like, all right, here's what you missed, because I done did it first. Not cool. There are ways to do tutorials without ruining bits of the story. Or indeed, this is the second point about how the tutorial was unnecessary, because immediately after the tutorial, there's a conventionally organized rulebook that just walks you through how the rules are. If I'd known that that existed, I would have skipped the tutorial and just read that part. And then gone through the tutorial like it was an actual game, pretending as though I had choices. I was so annoyed. On top of that, another minor niggle, but again, I'm just explaining to you how I was annoyed by ISS Vanguard. For the tutorial, they say, all right, here are the components you need. Set them up, put everything else back in the box. And then step one after that is read an entry from a book we told you to put back in the box. People, people from Awakened Realms, people, seriously, please never do this again, all right? Your other games with conventional rulebooks have been fine. You know, one of our favorite game of yours is Lords of Hellas. We hate Nemesis, but Nemesis' rulebook is fine. The rulebook for Lords of Hellas is fine. They're reasonably complicated games. Your previous narrative game that we tried of yours, which we kind of enjoyed, was Tainted Grail. The rulebook there was fine. And let me tell you, uh, the, the the rules that you're presenting aren't that complicated that you it's, need it's, to waste. It's, it's okay, man. You're right. It's you're okay. Right. Sorry. It's okay. Sorry. 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 Thank you'll, you. You'll get over it. I find the promise of the plot interesting. I find the components very visually appealing. It's all very, it's, it's the kind of sci-fi style that I really like. That's why I pledged for it. They actually sent an art book of ISS Vanguard along with the second wave of Lords of Hellas. And even then I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going to have to pledge for this monstrosity. And I did. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I did because it still looks really nice and I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops. But oh my goodness, do I feel like they were just wasting a few hours of my life because this could have been my opportunity to expose other people to the game or get started. Now I have to get started with a campaign with other players who missed the first chapter of the uh, anyway the other misgiving that I have and again this is, this is hearkening back to how Oathsworn is great and all campaign games should work this way it's a fixed player count game there are going to be four players involved in every game but unlike Oathsworn where you can have a sort of semi-automated version of a player who's not there all four players have to be represented and so you have that little chart that I've seen so many times in different games and whenever it shows up I kind of cringe because I know that I it's a feature I don't like. Well, with four players, everyone takes one crew position. With two players, everyone takes two crew positions. With three players, I get it, I get it, thank you. You couldn't design your game with enough flexibility to vary the player count. Fine, all right. And now you're insulting my intelligence with this chart. Anyhow. <laughs> 
So suffice to say, I have to get over myself to enjoy the rest of ISS Vanguard. And indeed, at the end of the tutorial, there was a rather cool YouTube video about what had happened. And that's at least something that I can show to people at the start of the rules explanation. Be like, this is what's going on. Now, that having been said, I have seen plaudits all over the internet for how good the voice acting is on all these uh, scripted elements. I was not impressed by the quality of acting at all. I thought it was standard, you know, get Meg from accounting and have her read some lines level. No offense to the people who did the, I don't know whether it was the direction. I don't know whether it was the actors themselves. I've been in, I've been in recording studios. It can sometimes be hard. I get it. It's just, I wasn't doing anything for me. So going forward, we're going to continue with the book rather than the possibility of having lines read out loud. So that is a very, very preliminary and very annoyed report <laughs> of having gone through ISS Vanguard. What's the game actually like? Well, you roll dice for checks. But somehow they felt the need for a two-hour tutorial to explain that... To generate you, you, pools of dice to you, roll for checks? You don't generate pools. You okay. allocate dice that you have. It, 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 all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'm confident I could explain the game in about five minutes. Somebody, I didn't need a two-hour tutorial. Could, could you just send people back through the tutorial mission and so they could sort of witness it? Is it a four-player experience or is it one... Well, I don't want to go through it again. Oh, uh, no. Well, I don't mean us in particular. Oh. I just meant, is it something that people yes, could do? Yes, but the problem is, the reason why they recommend you do it solo, and I have to agree with that recommendation, is because it's presented in an incredibly choppy way. Tiny bit of narrative, block of rules. Bit of narrative, block of rules. Forced choice, forced choice, block of narrative. Now you actually get to do something. And so, sitting there reading it alone, that's fine. But anybody else there, it just wouldn't be a very pleasant cooperative, collaborative experience. So maybe you just pass it around to the four players that are going to play it, and they each do it. Never mind. Moving on. <laughs> so I will be trying to get it to the table again, introducing other people to it, seeing what ISS Vanguard has to offer when it's not holding my hand in an obnoxious and time-consuming way. That is ISS Vanguard by pretty much the standard crew from Awakened Realms. We're talking about Andrzej Betkiewicz, Krzysztof Piskorski, Pavel Samborski, and Marcin Swikart. Mark, you and I got to experience something called Cult of the Deep. This is designed by Sam Stockton and published by BA Games. So we talked about Longshot the Dice Game and what makes it good. It's sort of like it's one roll and everybody gets to do something. One roll, everybody gets to do something. Moves along, tempo. I would really like to watch videos or just sit in fly on the wall style of a playtest group for this cult of the deep and why they thought that this was an interesting or fun game so what it is is uh, on your turn you're rolling five dice and then you have a bunch of re-rolls and you have a bunch of things that manipulate rolls and it's all based around this hidden roll system where you're never going to get any hints on what everyone's hidden role is. You just sort of have to parse it out by what other people do, i.e. you might roll a dagger and someone might start attacking someone that will sort of maybe give you a hint of who they are, maybe not, who knows. I'm hoping you can tell me what the, when a person dies, you, they become a... They become a wraith. A wraith, and, and can you ever win once you're the wraith? Yes. Okay, so I guess you're still in the game. But then it goes to the next player, and this goes around, and it says you can play up to eight players. That would be a nightmare. And even with the five players we had, it was fairly awful. What did you think, Mark? So I, I backed this game on a whim, and I realized after receiving it that this is an attempt to, to be bang. The I, I hesitate to use the word classic. The old 
and popular in some groups, Western game of player elimination and take that card play. The added element of Cult of the Deep is that there are these rituals at the center of the table, and you can allocate dice to trigger the rituals to activate a variety of weird effects. Some of those were kind of interesting. But the core gameplay element of trying to suss out whose team you were on and who you needed to help and how, and then systematically murdering everyone else, was fundamentally, I think, undercut by not necessarily the information opacity. I was in a fortunate position. At the start of the game, I knew everything I needed to know. So I'm not really in a position to comment about how transparent people's motives were. The part that I found problematic was because the game's progress of Cult of the Deep was glacial until it wasn't. And both of those game states were unpleasant. So I do two damage to you, then you heal three. I do one more damage to you, you heal another one. I do five damage to you, you heal four. Back and forth, back and forth endlessly until there's a flurry of one shots that happen one after the other that are ridiculously powerful, which is fine. The effects are cool, but they're so powerful that the nature of I play my awesome, cool one shot. It's like, oh, well, then I guess I'll play all my, my awesome, cool one shot, which completely supersedes yours. And now someone's dead. All right. <laughs> so, do I find it preferable to bang the card game? Kinda, maybe. But the moment you're asking that question, you know you're in trouble. Not saying much. Yeah, exactly. This is a very, very low bar, and the only interesting addition is indeed, as I say, the addition of the rituals. And the problem was even that the initial flop of rituals that we had only used results that were usable extraneously anyway. And so they were very seldom used because you had better things to do with your dice. And as a consequence, because we weren't using them, we didn't get new ones to replace them. When that logjam broke, things got a little bit more interesting, but certainly not to the level of, I would say, interesting gameplay. It was very, very slow. The the, the, the downtime was very real, despite the fact there wasn't much to do on your turn. Yes, I, I would not go back to Cult of the Deep. This is strictly for Bang fans. This is a variation on Bang. That should probably tell you everything you need to know about whether or not you want to try Cult of the Deep. Lastly for me, Strike. Now, I'm wondering if this is the high off of Hand-to-Hand Wombat. <laughs> and we decided to grab Strike off the, off the shelf because it was yet another game that, that I got in a while ago and, and hadn't really tried too, too much. And You hadn't explored the depths the of depths the design. The depths that is Strike. And, and I think... It was, we played it twice in a row. That's something, right? It's not nothing. <laughs> it's it true. It is something. And, and everyone seemed to enjoy it. But like I said, I'm wondering if it's, it was sort of, we were in that mind set off of hand-to-hand wombat. And then we went right into strike and we kept up that, that momentum and it made it more enjoyable than strike has any right to be. Yeah, there's almost nothing there. Strike is a game where you try to not ever go out. You want to be the last person left standing, so it's already got player elimination, and not even the gentle player elimination where, well, now you do a slightly different thing that you're quote-unquote dead. No, 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 you're gone, you're done, you're not doing anything else in the game. And you basically roll a die, and maybe you want to try to hit the other dice that are in the dice bowl, or maybe not. I'm not exactly sure it makes sense to try to hit the other dice or not. Not when there's one. Like, there was people throwing it at a single die. And there's no point because you're trying to make doubles, right? Right. So there's no point hitting the one die. Because... But is there more of a point when there's three or four? Yeah, for sure. Because Why? If, if there's two dice in it and they're different numbers, yes. there's no way those two are going to match. There, There's as much chance of turning it into an X as there is to ma- making it the other. Uh, but there's always a chance that you'll get triples, Mark. <laughs> 
So, sorry, okay. I, shouldn't say, okay. I shouldn't say you're trying to get doubles. You're just trying to get dice to match. So if you have three yeah, sixes you're, there you're, and two fives. We, we can cut out all the rest of this. You're rolling dice and you're trying to get matching results. Yes. That's it. <laughs> there are no re-roll powers. There's nothing else. Uh, there's a minor dexterity element because you're... You can hit dice, but I'm not sure it makes it smart to hit dice. More, I think more people lost dice out the game box and therefore out of the game by trying to hit things than actually did it. Well, that could be part of it too, right? <laughs> but, but there is an advantage to clearing the arena, I guess you could say. Sure. If, if there are no dice in the arena, the next player has to roll whatever dice they have. Which and, is brutal and, and incredibly and, vicious. And hope to get some sort of matches. Yeah, it's arbitrary, it's stupid, it's a fine activity. Yes. It's exactly. Oh yes, it's It's pretty dumb. I don't know if there honestly, I don't even know if there's any game in strike. Uh, yeah, no. I it's definitely an event. Yeah. Yeah, an, it's an event. An event box for sure. <laughs> strike was designed by Dieter Nussel and put up by Ravensburger in 2012. And those are the games we played last week. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice. It's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SoWrongGames at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SoWrongGames at Manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Walker, I covered this on Pledge of Indifference, but Eugene C. by Carl Chudik is on Backerkit. I've had a couple of people on the Patreon Discord ask, what are your thoughts about a GNC? And I played a GNC once a few years ago in prototype form, and allow me to tell you all you need to know. It's the next game by Carl Chudik. There. 
Have you ever played a game by Carl Chudik? No? Well, try one. I recommend Innovation or Glory to Rome. If you've played a game by Carl Chittick, like Innovation or Glory to Rome, you know what to expect. <laughs> so, full disclosure, a GNC is being published by Asmati Games, which is run by my personal friend Chris Cheslick. Mark, we have a Patreon. We do. We use all the Patreon money to buy games and go to events and do stuff for the podcast. And we also have- Like pay speaker fees. Yes, pay speaker fees and yeah. stuff like that. We also do all sorts of extra content. Like you just said, we do a uh, bi-weekly show about all the upcoming Kickstarters, stuff on GameFound, stuff on Kickstarter. You do a great segment of bloat when you feel like doing a great segment of bloat, which is fairly often. Well, there's going to be another one in a couple of days. Sweet. And we do, uh, we are doing a bunch of YouTube videos now. I just put one out public as we're recording this. And we do, sometimes we allow the patrons to see it first for a while, all sorts of extra stuff. Check it out. We have all different tiers that you can see. Patreon. And we give out games to our patrons. If you're a commissioner or an overlord, you pretty much have open access to our game collection. You can take whatever you want uh, for the cost of shipping. And this, of course, defies uh, inflation because it occurs to me we haven't changed the pledge levels, uh, pledge levels ever since we started. It's <laughs> so true. The deal just keeps getting better and better. Also, we have a couple of copies of Horizons of Spirit Island for our Canadian patrons. So this is the Target exclusive version of Spirit Island. I acquired a bunch of copies to mule to some Canadians. Kept one for myself. Gave one to Huey. Gave yeah, one to a friend th- of mine in the business. This is nothing against any uh, anyone out of. Canada. It's just the fact that oh, yeah. we don't have Target. I just want to explain that we don't have Target stores in Canada. Oh, so, that's the excuse we're using. So we oh. don't, that's not even funny. Yeah, so we don't have Target, so we can't get them here. So we would just like to make, give a chance for Canadians to get copies. Yes, absolutely. So if uh, you are a Canadian patron at any level, doesn't have to be at the free free game level at any level, just send me a Patreon message and tell me your spirit name. And over the course of the week, I will determine the two patrons that are going to be getting a copy of Horizons of Spirit Island. Uh, for what it's worth, my spirit name is Tedious Dilettante Deploys Doctrine. This has been my spirit name for quite some time. I feel it captures the essence of what it is to be Mark. So once again, just send me a message on Patreon. Use the built-in Patreon message system so I won't even have to go track you down to make sure that you're a patron. And just give me your spirit name. This is for Canadians only. And I will happily send you a copy of Horizons of Spirit Island. And that being said, for Patreons or soon to be Patreons, if you, we used to do a segment for Pandemic, the legacy versions, where we go through the whole, the whole process and give you all the spoilers and, you know, session by session sort of story mode. If you want to have that for, say, Oathsworn that we're going to be playing soon, just let us know and that's something we'll do. So that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Our feature game this week is Dead Reckoning by John D. Clare and Alderac Entertainment Group, published this year pursuant to a successful Kickstarter campaign. They launched a reprint Kickstarter campaign, which was also successful. You can get some late pledges now. Dead Reckoning is the latest game in the card crafting system involving lovely little bits of mylar and shoving things into card sleeves. So if you like mylar or sleeves, the card crafting system is for you. The card crafting system got its debut in Mystic Veil by John D. Clare, was then elaborated on in a sort of climbing game type system in Custom Heroes by John D. Clare, and then had a weird something or other, which was kind of worker placement, kind of deck building, but a whole lot of nothing, which we strongly did not like, in Edge of Darkness by a certain John D. Clare 
John DeClaire has also published games that do not involve card crafting, like Kubitos, also published by Alderac Entertainment Group. Suffice to say, John DeClaire puts out some stuff for Alderac Entertainment Group. Why don't you give us, Walker, an unhelpful summary of Dead Reckoning? Well, Mark, do you like Pokemon? Do you like upgrades? Do you like things that advance? Do you like things that get promoted, leveled, advancement, enhancements? All of these things, all of these things are in Dead Reckoning. And you got to keep them straight because they all do those things in different ways. And if you want to turn your rules person into a babbling psychopath, that just say everything are level ups and or upgrades and they'll slowly fall into a a level of hair pulling out that you'll never see anytime again. Wanna wanna try that sentence again? No. Okay. <laughs> and if you want to drive your rules explainer viciously insane, just keep calling them enhancements or just keep calling them upgrades for everything and they'll slowly, slowly and or quickly go mentally insane. So this is a pet peeve of mine, and I I don't know how widespread it is, Walker, just to contextualize things. There are games where you can, let's just use the generic verb, improve a whole bunch of things. The first time this really came to a head was when I was trying to teach people how to play Cerebria the Inside World. Because in Cerebria the Inside World, you can upgrade actions, you can intensify emotions, and you can do a whole bunch of other things. And there's a whole bunch of ways to make things better. And people would constantly say, okay, so how do I upgrade? And they're like, all right, the way you upgrade is this. And I'd give the spiel an upgrade, and they'd wait and say, that doesn't make any sense. How does that get this card to this other card? I'm like, well, that's not upgrading. That's intensification. So let's start again. And I'd have to do this over and over and over again. It would drive me batty. The same is true of (laughs) Dead Reckoning. You can upgrade your ship. You can purchase advancements, which you sleeve. And you can also level up your cards. And sure enough, despite the fact that for a while people were looking at me batty for trying to insist to keep these distinct, it matters because when you ask rules questions of the one person who's read the rule book... Mark, Mark, it's over now. It's, you're right. It's I'm in a safe place. I've just got to... You, you keep bringing up these <laughs> things, though, Walker. So, like, let's just talk about all those things first. So, like we said, you can level up your crew. crew. So, you have 12 crew cards in your hand, all sorts of different ones, captains, bosun, gunmen... All sorts of persons. Gunners, not gunmen. Gunmen are slightly different. Gotcha. There are all sorts of cards in your deck, and they all, they start at level one, and they go to level four. And you get to do this at the end of every turn, and there are also other cards and or events that will allow you to upgrade other, sorry, so you see I did it right there. Yeah, it's not yeah, upgraded. Yeah, yeah. You level up. It's okay. You're not giving a rules explanation, so you can speak <laughs> loosely here. You have my permission to be sloppy with terminology. Level up at different times. And I think this was the most significant part of all these levels. We're going to talk about other levels, yeah. but I think this is the one that felt more advantageous than all the rest. The rest are just, well, speaking of the rest, there are your ships. You have all these different, your ship starts with two sail and a gun, and you get all these different tiles that cover up all the different spots of your ship and, and usually just give you more sail and or more gun. Yes. Well, that I think already highlights one of my key problems with Dead Reckoning. I think Dead Reckoning is okay. I'm willing to play Dead Reckoning. I would rather play with three than with four because I think this, the key complaint I have about Dead Reckoning is the downtime. Now, John D. Clare has attempted to do something mildly clever to address this because you level up your crew in between your turns. You actually have something to do when it's not your turn. Granted, this is a decision that usually takes about five seconds, which is 
much, much shorter than the combined length of everyone else's turns, but setting that aside. So it's, but it's sort of like a, a two pro two step process because you can say my sort of turn is done. And the first thing you do is you get to slide in the Mylar and, you know, put in your advancements. Then you discard all of those cards and then you draw your new hand and of those cards, you get to level up one of your crewmen. So it's sort of like a two-step process that you get to do while the other people are taking their turns. I'm not saying that this is something that fills your mind or makes it perfectly, (laughs) you know, flowy, but it is something that, you know, so the game will continue to move while you're making these decisions. Yes, but here's one of my key, here are some of my other key complaints about Dead Reckoning. Most of the time, Games with deck building elements or with the trapping of deck building elements. And I think that there's a legitimate conversation to be had about whether or not the classic deck builder formula includes something like Dead Reckoning because you never get any more cards. You just make the cards you have better. In that sense, it's not entirely unlike Mystic Veil, and most people are okay calling Mystic Veil a relatively traditional deck builder, or at least slotting into that category. So we'll, I'll keep using the term, but I'm perfectly open to some, someone objecting to using the term. Ultimately, the things that you do to make your cards better are dull. I do not find them interesting. Effectively, what you get to do is slot in an extra icon. Oh, before it generated two cannons and a flag. Well, now it generates two cannons, a flag, and a sail. It's the same thing with your ship upgrades. You start with a cannon and two sails, and that's all you ever get to add to your boat. Just more of what you've already got. More crew compartment, more sails, more cannon, things of that nature. Now... Is it fun to use these elements of your boat? Yes. The actual execution of some of these actions are indeed kind of interesting, and we'll get to that, although not without their own shortcomings. But ultimately, in a sea of improvements, upgrades, enhancements, etc., etc., level-ups, I don't find many of them very cool. And when you contrast that with nearly any other deck builder or any other game with deck building trappings, like your first turn in Shards of Infinity, you're buying cool stuff. Your first turn of Dominion, you're buying cool stuff. Even by the end of Dead Reckoning, by the end of your first game of Dead Reckoning, you've seen almost everything there is to see. And then by the time you're in your third, fourth, fifth game, it's like, yeah, I, I, I've been here before. I guess this time I'll level up my bosun first so I can go for ship upgrades, which kind of sort of feel the same as going for everything else first. And that is the majority of what you're doing is the up, you know, getting stuff to upgrade other stuff. Yeah. There's not really anything underlying to support anything else. There's a little bit of pick up and deliver there. There's this achievement thing along the top, but the achievements are are usually things you're doing anyway. The achievements, I think, highlight on how unfocused the game is. It try Dead Reckoning is trying to be a little bit like Merchants and Marauders, a little bit like Western Legends, a little bit like Zaya, you know, the sandbox game. Want to go punch someone in the face? Go punch someone in the face. Want to go pick up and deliver? Pick up and deliver. Want to become the governor of an island? Go govern an island. So it, it, you start to get further and further away from this pirate theme, right? It's like, oh, well, I own these three islands, and I've built a whole bunch of infrastructure there. Yo, ho, ho, I guess. And the achievements really focus on, uh, uh, really emphasize how unfocused everything is because there's just, as you say, these are things you're going to get incidentally for pursuing these other strategies anyway. And they're all over the map. They cover every different kind of activity you could do. So at the end of the day, rather than emphasizing your freedom to pursue these different strategies, it kind of has a flattening effect where everything feels samey. There are two mechanisms in the game that play off of each other that, that do sort of make it interesting with the pick up and deliver system is there's this set sail uh part of the game and the and the actual moving around because 
you can't use any of the sails on your ship if you have goods on it and you can play some cards to get some more sail, but you have to generate all of the sail at once and then throughout your turn, uh, use it up to move around. So it's this interesting sort of sometimes, not all yep. the time, sometimes it's this, okay, you know, do I want to kick these barrels off into the ocean so I can actually move or do I want to try to get all of this coin back to my chest? Because that's how the victory coins are victory points and you don't automatically get to just keep them. You have to generate them on islands usually and then bring your boat over, pick them up with a limited, you know, spots on your ship and move them all the way back to port. Unfortunately, there are a little bit of fiddliness in there because if you own an island or you're in port, you do the silly thing where you free unload everything, generate your sails, and then free load everything back on again. So a little bit of, you know, unthematic timing issues there. But I guess, you know, it does make the game flow a little better uh, overall. But those parts of the game I thought were interesting. I agree. And what it does is it makes it hard to get your goods, which are mostly generated for free at Harbor, off to distant islands, which is how you go buy new advancements. You buy the new pieces of Mylar to slot in. The problem is, though, so many of the Mylar effects are either sufficiently situational or boring that you don't really care about them, and or you can't slot them where you want to slot them anyway because there's this bizarre restriction about not being able to overwrite existing improvements. Yeah, and then on top of that, you're not you're slotting them in at the end of your turn into cards they've used, and those cards now go in your discard pile, and then you don't get to see these advancements until you cycle through your whole deck again. Right, which normally isn't a big of a problem because that's typically how deck builders work. But when you compare it to the instant gratification of leveling up, what it does is it just the game kind of just shoves you in the direction of using the less interesting elements of the game. That's one example of them. It encourages you to make more immediate advantage of the leveling up mechanism rather than going out and buying new cards. If the cards were more interesting, that would force you to engage more with those interesting trade-offs of how do I get my goods from Harbor to this interesting place while maintaining enough movement. As it is, more often than not, I look at the sea of upgrades, well, literally, because there's as many as 12 upgrades available at any time. I apologize. I keep using the term upgrade here. 12 advancements. I look at and say, okay, the only one I really care about is that one. Eh, it's too expensive, whatever. Like, it's just, I, I don't look over at, at, at a sea of interesting stuff. The interesting stuff is all myopic, inward-looking, about the leveling up. Eh. Yeah. I, I, and mostly I found it disappointing, because as you say, it is interesting to try to manage to get things from point A to point B. Hardly exceptionally piratical, but the game doesn't lean into it to the extent that I want. Yeah, it's like leaving the harbor with a bunch of barrels to go out and buy cards, and then on the way back to get more barrels, you fill up your boat with coins to bring back to your chest. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and not especially piratical. No. I would have I would have really we're gonna talk more about combat in a moment. I would have appreciated it if you had a ship full of stuff, if you were more vulnerable as a consequence, or if the the risks of combat were heightened, you know. That would be both thematic and satisfying from a gameplay element. As it is, it doesn't really matter all that much unless you have truly Herculean quantities of currency. It only matters if you've got, like, you know, a large number in excess of five, which doesn't tend to happen all that much. Then you become a vulnerable target for piracy. As it is, most of the time, you go start a fight because the process of fighting just disgorges money and goods from nowhere for both the attacker and the defender. And so it doesn't feel like an organic development of player choices. It just feels like, well, time to go pull the arm of the slot machine. Well, it could be pretty bad because games of, of Dead Reckoning are sometimes between 50 and 80, 
from all the games that we've played. And sinking, winning scores, yeah. And sinking a ship is a swing of 10 points. So in a game that is 50-80, 10 points is quite a few. Absolutely. But that's if you sink a ship. Yes. Oh, for sure. In my experience, sink sinks are sunk. Sunks, ships, ships are skunks are shipped. Ships are sunk as a consequence of player A beating up player C and then player B finishing the job, which is so unsatisfying for both players A and C. It's ridiculous. Having been player B on a number of those occasions, I felt kind of dirty doing it. There's a, there's an achievo in the game for, for sinking a ship. You can't choose to focus on damage, really. There's some, dam- there's some battle abilities where you can do that sometimes, but mostly it's just because you got lucky and because the target was softened up already and they couldn't defend themselves. So it, it's very strange. Let's talk about the lucky part, right? So... Fights happen, you generate cannons and or any abilities that generate cubes. So cannons generate cubes, abilities generate cubes. How many cubes are the opponent is the opponent going to have? Well, you're either going to be fighting a card or you're going to be fighting a player or you're going to be fighting an island. And they all give cubes in different ways. And then you take all these cubes and you drop them down a cube dispenser and they flow out onto this two-layered board and fall into these different uh, categories of stuff that's going to happen, either damage or or free loot or winning the actual battle. So you could sink the other person's ship and still lose the battle. So there are some crowns there. So whoever has the most crowns wins the fight. And I kind of like it. It's interesting. It keeps things, you know, sort of random and wild. Even if I, you know, you only drop, you know, two cubes to five, the person who dropped two cubes could still win because, you know, they happen to hit a crown and the other person doesn't. These things are kind of interesting. I'm fine with that. The battle resolution is fine. It's it's all okay. I think, though, given how much the game wants to rely on things like sinking ships, on things like being able to steal the cargo of somebody who's about to, who's transporting a large amount of gold back home, I wish that the battle system had been slightly more conventional and based on custom dice. I think that would have opened up the upgrade and advancement system considerably as well, because instead of just, well, I'm generating combat, let's see what this combat gives me in this fight. Oh, I got a whole bunch of cargo for no reason. Yay. Or I sunk them randomly. Okay. You could instead have different dice that focused on this one generates loot. This one generates damage. This one helps me win. I think that would have made this space a little bit more interesting and also would have given you a little bit more control and a little bit more uh, ability to predict how the combat system would shake out. I don't object to the fact that the combat system is random. Somebody who can win with two cubes over five, that's fine. The vicissitudes of combat, whatever. It's that the, specifically the consequence of sinking usually happens primarily as a result of degenerate turn order issues as opposed to anything else. And that bothers me. Then there's the, to do with combat, there's the difference of being a merchant versus being a pirate. So you can, at the end of your turn, you can say, I am going to be a pirate. And you can use that to like sort of protect either a card or protect an island. Or you can say you're going to be a merchant and then no one can attack you unless they happen to have a Jolly Roger card in their hand. And that part I thought was was neat, an ability to threaten combat, whether you're capable of it or not. You can indeed go into pirate mode and threaten to fight people, even you're obliged to make that choice before you draw up for the next turn. So you can kind of bluff and do it, even if you don't know whether you're going to have any combat capability going into it. That part, I think, le- lent some teeth and made the whole island jockeying feel a little bit more piratical because a lot of the points 
are about island control and island production. Things that are thematically somewhat unsatisfying and don't really lead to a whole lot of, I think, satisfying player interaction. There's this area majority element with dropping cubes, and it's okay. And, yeah, but didn't it all? Didn't it seem to you that it was just something you happened to do because you they were in your hand at the time? Yes. Like I have this hand of cards, and I want to go get this this advancement. While I'm on my way to get this advancement, I'm going to drop some cubes off on 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 these islands. And if you have more cubes than anyone else, you control them. It does have this interesting open sea sort of bonus because some of the the spaces of the board are just open sea and don't have islands, but they give production bonuses to certain adjacent islands. I thought that was fairly interesting. And they also have sort of control bonuses as well. If you control an island, sometimes you got a bigger hand size, stuff like that. It was semi-interesting. There's buildings you can build on the islands, cannons that people would take damage as they sailed through, uh, workshops that made the production part better, and uh, fortresses that would stop people from dropping cubes until they dealt with the fortress. I want to be perfectly clear, though. I mean, despite all my complaints, the player interaction in Dead Reckoning, for the most part, is pretty good. So the area majority jockeying for the islands is fine. The islands don't have a whole lot of personality, so again, it's just something you mostly do on the way, at least in my experience. The combat, although swinging and not a whole lot of control involved, you can threaten it very effectively or try to throw your weight around in a way that's a lot more satisfying than a lot of these other sort of sandboxy style games where, well, you can build infrastructure, but I have a sledgehammer so I can just bash it down. So at least you don't have those problems. I do find the downtime obnoxious. In a four-player game, it feels like an eternity before your turn comes up again. Even in a three-player game, it's relatively obnoxious. And honestly, one of my key complaints is that the game doesn't make me feel like I'm engaged in any sort of serious risk when I'm loading up my boat. I've commented that before, and I just want to uh, uh, contrast it with a game that I find shockingly similar and superior, and that's Cosmic Frog. In Cosmic Frog, I too am engaged in a kind of pick up a deliver mechanism, although instead I'm just storing lands in my gullet before I disgorge it into my vault. Same principle as loading up goods and bringing them to your treasure chest. The difference is in Cosmic Frog, you can look around the table and say, ooh, that's a nice gullet. I'd like to raid that. Ooh, I'd like... And you can take risks. And when combat occurs, when it shakes out, it's largely because somebody made a decision to focus that uh, uh, point of attention or conflict at a certain juncture at the map. In Dead Reckoning, it's mostly, as you said, very much like putting cubes on an island. Well, I have this thing in my hand. Yeah. Or it's <laughs> I, like, oh, that ship has one damage on it. Uh, well, I'll just pile on that. that exactly. And I know, and, and, and to circle back to my previous complaint about A, softening up C for B's benefit, when you get attacked, you play all your combat cards anyway. If you get attacked and you don't play any combat cards, that just communicates to the rest of the table, this, is, this player is vulnerable, come beat them up. There's no reason not to. So... There's a bit of that in Cosmic Frog as well, but at least in Cosmic Frog, after you've been predated on and your gullet's empty, well, there's not a whole lot a whole lot of reason to go pick a fight with that person anyway. So it's more dynamic, and the pick-up-and-deliver element interfaces with the combat in a more meaningful way. In a game of Dead Reckoning, I don't feel like I'm playing in a sandbox with interconnected elements. I feel like there's just a scattershot set of systems that don't really interlock in a satisfying way. And then, like, I'll go back to the downtime because it's not just the downtime while playing. It's the setup and takedown of this game is egregious as well. It's making sure all the decks are clear, all the all the sailors are at the right level, placing all the proper islands out, 
setting up the whole game. And then when you go to tear it down, you have to take out all of the advancements, you know, all of the stuff put away. It is fairly lengthy for, I, for the amount that you get, I think. I wouldn't say egregious, especially since the game is already going to be pretty long. <laughs> A solid 30 minutes per player, if not more. It was all right. I don't think the setup in Terra was particularly bad. You do have to make sure that all the details are followed, though. It's detail-oriented, because if people don't set up and tear down their decks appropriately, there, there could be problems. And on the on the subject of components, the components are fantastic. You get these very nice barrels and crates and the ships that you move around and the, the cube tower that we talked about is built very nice and solid. The, you know, crafting the cards, I've yet to see one of the sleeves, unlike Mystic Veil and the other ones where it splits down the side. I've played Dead Reckoning quite a few times, haven't seen a single broken sleeve yet. And it comes with plenty of spares, yes. I, I was reasonably pleased with the quality of components. I also like the art. It's it's pretty appealing. Again, pirates don't really do a whole heck of a lot for me as a theme. And indeed, for much of the game, I didn't feel much like a pirate for most of the things that I was doing. Much of the time, I felt like some sort of courier company and or petty governor of scattered islands. But overall, I think the pirate theme was visually well communicated. And then there's the event cards, which I'm talking about, like the merchant ships. I thought they were kind of interesting. The encounters. The encounters. Yeah, there were these advancement cards that were out on the islands, just like all the other advancement cards, but you had a choice. You could either just buy it like you would a normal advancement or you could attack them and it would do other stuff. And there was also, there's a campaign slash legacy element as well, where you're going out and you're going through fog or into caves and you're doing interesting things. I appreciate subtle callback to Oathsworn. I appreciate the fact that in Dead Reckoning, when you're implicating the expansions, they're called saga expansions. You can either go whole hog and play a six game campaign where there's going to be one winner at the end and you're expected to play with the same players every time, or you can introduce it the more gentle way and just say, ah, shuffling these cards. Sometimes there'll be some quasi narrative experiences. And I found those relatively painless. It didn't add considerably to the game, but it didn't add considerably to either the rules explanation or the overall burden of presenting things. So it's just occasionally a little piratey yeah, interlude s- here and there. Semi, semi-whimsy and, you know, like a little, you know, pull the theme in a little bit more. You know I mean? There's yeah. this stuff going on. More you know. Pirates of the Caribbean in terms of fantasy elements than, say, Treasure Island, but that's a matter of taste. So Dead Reckoning, I found it fun. I would play it. I don't know if I would ever suggest it. I'd probably suggest it to people who liked sort of that kind of card crafting system because it's sort of, because I, I enjoy that upgrade. I enjoy upgrading cards and your ships and sort of, you can technically go on sort of like different strategies. It's like, I'm going to go heavy cannons or I'm going to try to take over all the islands. So there's different ways you can play. But overall, like I said, there's not much of a game to support all of this upgrading and stuff. I personally fear that Dead Reckoning may be the midpoint between two styles of games and would ultimately satisfy fans of neither. If you really like those sandbox games, like Merchants and Marauders would be the obvious point of comparison, I'm not sure that you're going to find Dead Reckoning satisfying. On the other hand, if you think that sandbox games are unfocused and unbalanced between a variety of different strategies, I'm not sure you're going to find Dead Reckoning coherent enough, or literally in the sense that the the mechanisms do not cohere to each other, to be fully satisfying. So as it is, I, I think 
it might be halfway between two worlds. Now, that having been said, enthusiasts of pirate games and who like playing both management euros and deck builders of that nature and merchants and marauders, this might be the perfect union for them, but I'm not in a position to speculate. Personally, I, I'm in the camp that found it more satisfying than a lot of the sandbox games, which I find tend to fall apart, but again, not particularly coherent. The different strategies all kind of ended up being a bland, undifferentiated mess rather than a whole bunch of strategically interesting different choices to be made. And so at the end of the day, I'm, I'm mostly left with a, a game with a lot of downtime and without really the thrills that I associate with deck building or of combat necessarily. So, Yeah, and the end always seemed very... Sudden anticlimactic. Yeah, just very anticlimactic. Well, yeah, it's like a lot of Chivo-based games where for a long time no one has obtained any achievements and then suddenly the achievements come hot and heavy and suddenly it's the last round. Yeah, I I don't know if I'd play Dead Reckoning again if someone suggested it. It would have to be a small player count, preferably with people who knew what they were doing, and I'd, I'd want to try to get in and out in under, under 90 minutes. But past that, I, I don't think I'd have the patience for once again watching people struggle with the different kinds of upgrades. Wait, when do I level up again? How do the advance? I sleeve this when? Oh, I can't sleeve this now. Okay. So that's Dead Reckoning by John D. Clare and Alderac Entertainment Group. That is going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find all of our contact information on sowronggames.com slash contact. Sowronggames.com is our most excellent website maintained by our most excellent warm boy. That's warm boy, not worm boy. Says you. Thank you again for spending time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.